right, good evening once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 8? For the sake of those just maybe tuning in tonight, watching on live stream, or if anybody's here tonight that is uh, new, um, let me just review quickly. The uh, Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, contain the judgments of God that are going to be poured out upon the earth during what is called the seven-year tribulation period. Now, these judgments will culminate with Jesus' return to the earth, at which time he will do battle with the Antichrist and his armies, and then he will cast the Antichrist and false prophet alive into the lake of fire, and, um, and at that point destroy the remaining earth dwellers with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. Uh, he will then bind Satan in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, all as a prelude to establishing his millennial kingdom upon the earth. You can read Revelation 19 to see all that. But uh, the pattern of the, of the book of Revelation so far in our study is as follows. In chapter 6, we saw Jesus break the seals on the scroll, the scroll which he took out of the Father's right hand. This scroll, as we have said, is the title deed to the earth, which... Jesus redeemed back to God on Calvary's cross. However, before he can come and establish his kingdom upon the earth, he first has to judge the earth dwellers, as we just mentioned, who are presently occupying the earth, and he's got to judge them and remove them. And uh, we see him begin to do this in chapter 6 by breaking the first six seals on the scroll. And as he does, various judgments are unleashed upon the inhabitants of the earth and as we've already seen after the sixth seal judgment there is a break a parenthesis in chapter 7 which we've already studied and after the pause of chapter 7 chapter 8 opens up with the breaking of the seventh seal and when the seventh seal is broken it actually sets in motion another series of judgments more devastating than the first six seal judgments. These judgments are known as the seven trumpet judgments. And that's where we are tonight. So let's read verse 1 again of Revelation 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar... He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all of the saints upon the golden altar which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now, guys, the first four trumpets, let me just break this down quickly. We did this, I'm still reviewing a little from last week. The first four trumpets are judgments against the earth, followed by the fifth and sixth trumpets, which are judgments directed at mankind. The seventh trumpet will unleash the seven bold judgments, which... Uh, will be against both the earth and mankind. Uh, the first four trumpets seem to be natural disasters, which God is using in a supernatural way to bring judgment. Think of the plagues of Egypt. Hold that in your mind, okay? So the first trumpet, verse 7, 
the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Hail and fire mingled with blood reminds us of the seventh plague that God sent against Egypt. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 9. Also, the prophet Joel prom uh, promised uh, blood and fire during the last days, uh, during what he called the day of the Lord judgments. You can read about that in Joel chapter 2. Now, this could be a totally supernatural judgment. And if it is, well, we don't need to try to explain how hail, fire, and blood get mingled together. <laughs> if this is a supernatural judgment, God can mix any kind of uh, judgment cocktail together that he wants, and we don't have to know how he did it. Just there, That's just it, right? But often the Lord will use natural things in supernatural ways, and he'll do that with judgment uh, also. It could be that these, again, are natural disasters that he is orchestrating in a supernatural way to bring about this judgment. As Dr. Henry Morris, in his commentary on Revelation, explains, and I quote, it may be possible that angelic hosts will divert the path of one of the many comets, uh, comets with which the solar system abounds so that the earth will pass through its tail. Whether such an experience would produce the phenomena described in this passage, we do not know, since our scientists have no experimental data to go on yet. He said another possibility might be that of a worldwide volcanic explosion or explosions, a normal consequence uh, of worldwide violent earthquakes. So uh, verse 5 talks about earthquakes, and these could unleash uh, volcanic eruptions, okay? And if they do, the masses of water vapor blown skyward might well condense in the intense updrafts as hailstones, and showers of burning lava might well be cast upon the earth with them. The blood of entrapped men and animals might be mingled with them, or possibly showers of liquid water drops might be so contaminated with dust and gases as to appear blood red, end quote. So we don't know. We're just speculating, okay? But we know this. The target for this judgment is green vegetation upon the earth, uh, consisting of the trees and the grass, resulting in one-third of the trees of the earth and all the green grass being burned up. Now, that tells me that this has got to be a supernatural occurrence. Um, how do you have anything that burns up all the green grass on the face of the earth? So God is obviously uh, allowing this to spread, these judgments to be uh, go beyond the local application that we see many of these natural disasters and in a supernatural way spreading them across the entire globe. Uh, we can only imagine how this would affect not only the balance of nature, but also the food supply. Think about this. Uh, there's a lot of insects, some, some animals, but mostly insects that feed on green vegetation. Well, then other animals, birds and other smaller animals, feed on the insects. Uh, larger animals feed on those animals until finally you get human beings which feed on, you know, on some of the animals that have fed on all this other stuff, Okay. So that's going to disrupt the food chain. Also, the Greek word for trees, dendron, 
you, you, you think of a dendro dendrologist who is somebody who specializes with trees, all right? But the uh, Greek word uh, uh, trees, it usually means fruit trees, fruit trees, along with the destruction of pasture lands, well, uh, that would devastate the meat and milk industries and lead to further famine and starvation and death across the planet. Of course, the tree huggers, <laughs> the radical environmentalists, are going to have heart attacks when all this begins to happen. But God is judging man's God. Uh, Mother Earth, Gaia, right? The Earth Goddess. Many people worship the Earth, some knowingly worshiping it as a, as a, a goddess. Uh, others just worship it in different ways also. But um, many people today do worship the Earth. Maybe you've seen the bumper. I haven't seen one in a while, but uh, the bumper sticker that says, Love your mother. And there's a picture of the Earth there, right? The bumper sticker, right? Uh, people today, and we've talked about this, are worshiping the earth. And it does take different forms. You have naturalism, which is where the scientists dwell. Uh, the evolutionists and things, okay, that everything came about by natural processes apart from any divine or supernatural input, all right? These are the folks, these super intellectuals, quote-unquote, who think that God only exists in the minds of religious non-intellectuals like all you folks. Anybody who's enlightened, anybody who's with it scientifically knows that religion is just for the, the simple-minded. We've, we've gone past that. And so they worship the creation in the sense that that's all there is. Naturalism is the belief that, uh, that everything came about through natural processes, again, apart from any supernatural uh, input. And you see a lot of uh, scientists and a lot of intellectuals that find themselves under that umbrella. Uh, but you also have the religious folks in the world uh, that worship the earth in what is called pantheism. Now, these will be the Hindus, the New Agers, okay, and others like them who believe that, uh, that the God force, this impersonal God force, you've heard of the Star Wars force, right? Do you know that George Lucas is very much into this whole thing? He was, I don't know if he still is, but uh, he said that those movies... And I like science fiction, okay? But I, you know, as a Christian, you see, you see where a lot of this stuff is going and what they're preaching. But George Lucas said that that um, he considered himself the Billy Graham of the Force. That's what he said, and that those movies were in part designed to entertain, but to indoctrinate, to get people over into the religion of the Force. That's what he said. I'm I'm, I'm not making that up, okay? Uh, so you have those who believe that the God force, this impersonal force, uh, fills everything, flows through the entire universe, right? Uh, the whole earth, but then the trees, the rocks, you guys, me, uh, this podium. Uh, it's all, the God force is flowing through all of it. It's called pantheism. All is God, all right? All is God. And so obviously uh, that would not only uh, invoke the worship of the earth and things, but the worship of man. Think about it. Those who buy into this believe that they're gods. And um, we're all gods. Trouble is, we forgot we were gods. How does a god forget he's a god? That's a little crazy. Uh, but we have to be enlightened to the reality that we are gods. And once we are enlightened, how do you do that? Well, there's different techniques, meditation, uh, diff different little things that, they, that they, they encourage you to do, visualization uh, and all. And, and by that way, you'll become enlightened, right? 
But there are others, okay? There are those like the Wiccans. Um, the Wiccans, don't, witches and things, don't lump them into the group of Satanists. They're not Satanists. They're witches. But they're nature worshipers. Uh, Wiccans are nature worshipers. So in that regard, they worship nature. They worship the creation. All of this, idolatry, it takes different forms. Uh, but it's, it, all of it is simply the worship of the creation and defiance of the creator. Turn to Romans 1. We have gone here several times during this study. I can't promise you won't, we won't go several more times. I don't know. It just depends on where we are and how it fits. Um, but, but this idea that God is judging the earth. Why is God judging the earth? Because it's become an object of worship. And God will not share his glory with anyone or anything. So God begins to destroy the very idol that man has set up in his heart to worship. And Paul talked about this, Romans 1, starting with verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now he's talking about judgment. Um, I think he's got a bigger picture of judgment than what we're reading about in Revelation, but certainly would be included, okay? But God's wrath, his judgment, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, I'll paraphrase, in their desire to live unrighteously. So God has placed in everybody's heart the knowledge of God. Uh, it's the most natural thing in the world for a child to believe in God because they're kind of born with that innate knowledge. It takes years of indoctrination to beat that knowledge, that belief in God out of them to replace it with a secular mindset, which is what we're seeing now shifted into high gear in schools across our country, across the planet, really. Uh, but Paul says that because God has made man smart enough to know there is a God, the creation declares the glory of God, the firmament, the skies, uh, the heavens show forth his handiwork. It's a universal language, David said, that's preaching constantly a message that God is real. God exists. And we've talked about this. I don't have to belabor this, that God didn't start the Bible by saying, look, I'm God. Let me tell you who I am so that you know how I came into being. And, you know, and, no, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he moved on. He didn't feel the need to stop and explain himself. Why? Because God has made us smart enough that some things are self-evident. Some truths are self-evident, right? Forgive me if I've repeated myself, okay? Uh, no, I don't have to prove somebody built this podium. It's self-evident that it, because it exists, somebody made it. I don't have to prove that, you know, the reality of my existence. The fact that I am indicates God is, all right? And, and if you look at the creation, God has said, I made you smart enough to understand. You can't have a creation without a creator. You can't have a, a, a sculpture without a sculptor. You can't have a painting without a painter. These are truths that are self-evident. And if you deny the reality of the creator, even though you see the creation every day, and it's speaking a universal language to all mankind that God is real, he did this, then God will hold you personally accountable in the day of judgment for rejecting that information. So all are guilty. Oh, but I wasn't a Christian. But you had the creation. And uh, if you would have been honest about the creation that it was made by a creator, and you would have gotten on your face and said, I don't know who you are, but I want to know you. This has actually happened uh, numerous times in like uh, remote areas of the world where missionaries finally, after years of trying to reach some remote tribe or somewhere in the world, reached them and they had already found out that an angel had visited them. It's going to become important in chapter 14. 
God's going to do this for the whole world. But an angel, they, 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 they knew there was a God who made this. They, these simple people just began to cry out to this deity that he would reveal himself and God sent an angel and, uh, and explained who he was to these people. God will never let anyone go to hell who desires to know him. It's, if there is somebody who has a heart to know God, they will, God will never let them go to hell for lack of information. I don't care if he's got to write it across the sky, the gospel. Uh, Google Maseroth. Okay, I'll let you run with that. All right, go to our Genesis study and look up uh, Maseroth. Uh, God wrote his gospel in the stars, okay? Satan tried to rip it off with the Zodiac, but uh, no. Uh, God, God put the stars in the, in the heavens for signs and, and to speak to us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God is how he stooped to save fallen mankind. That he was such a kind, gracious, and loving God that he could have walked away. He could have said, well, you blew it. I'm gonna, I'll go to the other side of the universe and create another race of people. Maybe they'll listen to me. But his glory is that he loved us so much. You know, in pagan cultures, uh, they sacrificed people to the gods. Christianity, God sacrificed himself for the people. That was revolutionary, folks. We got 2,000 years of, of Christianity under our belts. For us, it's, not, it's, it's, it's common. But not for the people in, you know, in, in first century. Uh, this was revolutionary that God cared so much, the Christian God cared so much, he was willing to lay down his life that people might live. That, that was extraordinary, right? But this takes different forms. So here God is judging uh, and destroying man's God. I know some would say, well, but wait a minute, he's, drawing, he's destroying his own creation. No, he's, man destroyed that. Man destroyed God's creation. God, when he, when he sinned and brought uh, a corruption into God's creation, God is judging man's fallen creation. And uh, God's original creation was perfect and pure before it was defiled and corrupted by man. And so he's going to recreate it after uh, this fallen world is judged and destroyed. Now, in verses 7 through 12, four times during these judgments, it says, and a third was destroyed, and a third was destroyed, four times. You say, well, why was only a third destroyed? Couldn't God do the whole deal? You better believe he couldn't. Thank God he didn't, or he won't. You know why? God could have destroyed, or we're talking about future events, revelation. At that time, God could destroy the whole universe in a microsecond. Okay, the fact that he drags it out for about four years, I mean, you know, is because of his long suffering. Remember what Peter said? God is patient and long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We've talked about this. These judgments start off light and progressively get more intense. But the idea is that God hits the world with a few judgments, backs off waits for people to respond with repentance so he can save them. Then he comes with another little blast of judgment, backs off. He strings us out. Uh, you say, well, over the whole seven years, we're going to see, no, not really. We get to it tonight. Uh, I, I believe, though, for a good four years, from the beginning of the tribulation to about four years in, after that, you're gonna, we're going to see that God then really starts ratcheting up the judgments. Why? 
Everybody who's going to be saved by that time is already saved then. Okay, but up until that point, these judgments do serve an evangelistic purpose. But at one point, people's hearts are so hard, uh, there's no more point. And so the judgments come, boom, boom, boom. You can read as you progress. It is one after another. God's not giving people any time to repent because he knows their hearts are all so hard, they're not going to repent. So what's the point, right? Now, I will say this to you guys, that um, before we go on, let me say that there are many commentators who look at this whole section allegorically and try to symbolize the text. Uh, they say grass, well, that's referring to people. Isaiah 40, verse 6 says, all flesh is grass. Trees, well, those refer to world leaders. Wasn't Nebuchadnezzar likened to a tree in Daniel chapter 4? Mountains, they say, are symbolic of earthly governments. One place that sticks out in our mind is Daniel chapter 2, talking about uh, a stone that hit the image in its feet, and the whole image crumbled, and the stone grew into a, a great mountain that covered the earth. Earthly government, Jesus' government. Uh, they say the sea, well, that refers to humanity in general, and they point to Revelation 13, verse 1, where the beast or the Antichrist comes out of the seas. And they say, well, that's a reference to him coming out of the nations, uh, the people. And I agree with that uh, in chapter 13, verse 1. We'll get to it uh, when we get to it. But, uh, but they want to allegorize all of this stuff. I interpret the judgments of Romans chapter 8 to be literal judgments upon the plant life and the waters of the earth in the same way that the plagues of Egypt were literal. Check out Exodus 9. In fact, there is a striking similarity between the plagues in Egypt and the trumpet judgments. And guys, this is no accident. That is by divine design. And we'll talk about that as we go. But uh, if you go back to the book of Exodus, not now, of course, but if you go back to the book of Exodus, you will see that the plagues were literal. I mean, no serious Bible student would deny that. And if you take those plagues to be literal, there is no reason not to take these plagues in Revelation 8 as being literal also. All right, the second trumpet, trumpet verse 8. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. You know, skeptics, they're a lot of fun, aren't they? They read this and go, you dumb Christians, you really think God's going to pick up a mountain and throw it into the sea? How stupid can you be? Uh, could you just read a little more carefully? John says something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. They get it wrong because they don't really look. They're so busy wanting to charge us with foolishness and, and stupidity, they don't even read what the Bible says. It's like I was listening to one uh, uh, guy who was, uh, he uh, preaches on college campuses. Uh, it, was, it was Don Stewart, actually. Uh, some of you know Don. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, he in those days would go to college campuses and they would have debates and things. And one of the professors was, you know, thought he was so smart. I said, well, you know, the Bible says that, uh, that the whale barfed up Jonah on the shores of Nineveh uh, and so on. And, and everyone knows that Nineveh was not next to the sea. And Don says, excuse me, it doesn't say the whale barfed up Jonah on the shores of Nineveh. 
It says the whale barfed up Jonah on the shore and he walked to Nineveh. See, they don't even they don't even read the Bible. They've got it all figured out, and we're wrong, and they're right, and they're so smart, and we're so look. This thing, John says, I saw something. And remember, we're talking about a first century guy who's been transported into the future a couple thousand years, right? He's at a great disadvantage. I mean, after all, we do have the benefit of Star Wars and special effects, and we could better probably uh, relate what John is seeing better than John did. He's doing his best, right? And at this point, he says, look, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, I believe what John is seeing uh, what he's making reference to is a giant meteor which enters the Earth's atmosphere and begins to burn with fire. All right. In Luke chapter 21, verse 26, Jesus tells us that during the tribulation period, at one point, men's hearts would be failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. If you compare that statement with Revelation chapter 8, verse 8, it could be that one of the things that will terrify people, of the, people the, terrify the people of the world at that time will be what I believe is a giant meteor hurtling toward earth. I mean, it's going to dominate the news day and night. Of course, initially, the big question is going to be, will it hit the earth? And after a while, they're going to determine that, yes, it will strike the earth. And then the big question becomes, where on earth will it hit? And how much damage is it going to do? Well, we don't have to guess where it's going to hit because it tells us, and something, John says, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Somebody said that if a meteor one mile wide coming from outer space, crashed into one of our seas or oceans, it would create a tidal wave, listen, two miles high, moving in excess of 600 miles an hour. Now that's about the speed a commercial airliner cruises at. 600 miles an hour. Can you imagine a wall of water two miles high coming at, you know, people at 600 miles an hour? Uh, that, that's hard to even get your mind around, right? A tidal wave of that magnitude would hit the surrounding shore. You know, if it crashed into the Pacific, look at a map. In every direction, that tidal wave is going to disperse. And to the north, south, east, west, every landmass is going to be inundated. Okay? Inundated. Um, no doubt destroying billions, if not trillions of dollars of private property uh, and no doubt it's going to would kill hundreds of thousands if not millions of people depending on how much warning time they were given to evacuate that kind of thing the sea here guys could be the mediterranean sea which would be the heart of the antichrist base of operations daniel tells us that his empire is going to be a revival of the roman empire which dominated that area of the world right so maybe god is going to pour out this uh, this judgment, this giant mountain meteor thing, uh, going to hit the Mediterranean, and will and will destroy all the uh, 
areas uh, to the north, and of course then you've got uh, Africa to the south and things, but um, a lot of devastation, a lot of devastation. Uh, however, the Greek word for sea could be speaking of a larger body of water, water also. It, it could the, the word could be applied to like a, a, a larger body of water, like an ocean, like an ocean. Uh, that's interesting because the Pacific Ocean happens to cover about, about one-third of the Earth's surface. If this thing does hit in the Pacific Ocean, it, it's hard to comprehend the damage it will do. I mean, do you realize that 80% of our oxygen on planet Earth doesn't come from the rainforest. It comes from phytoplankton and algae in the world's oceans and seas. If the Pacific Ocean is in view, and this meteor wipes out one-third of the phytoplankton and algae in the Pacific, uh, that will mean the Earth's oxygen will be cut by 10 to 15 percent, making it hard to breathe, especially at higher elevations. And if several of the ships, a third of the ships will be destroyed. If several of those ships are nuclear battleships and or submarines, nuclear submarines, and after they're destroyed, they have a core meltdown. Well, you can see how that would greatly contribute to, contribute to marine life being destroyed in the, in the Pacific Ocean. The third trumpet, verse 10. Then the angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the, name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood. Wormwood means bitter. Uh, in this context, poison, poisonous. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter or poison. Uh, this is a judgment being poured out on the fresh waters of the earth. The other one on the sea are the ocean, salt water, uh, bodies of, of water, um, but this one is poured out on the fresh waters of the earth. Now, guys, since we saw what is, what is probably going to be a giant meteor hitting the earth that, uh, in, in just the previous verses, uh, that leads me to believe this is not another meteor. It's something different. Something different, okay? We already see the meteor thing. This, this is a something different, all right? This star could be a reference to an angelic being named Wormwood. In Revelation 12, angels are referred to as the stars of heaven. This could be a reference to some angel named Wormwood uh, that supernaturally strikes the earth's fresh water, making it, again, bitter or poison. Or it could be a nuclear explosion of some kind above the earth, which poisons the fresh water supply. Uh, doing a little research, uh, there was an unnamed Russian writer who was quoted as claiming that the Ukrainian word for wormwood is, ready, Chernobyl. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Chernobyl, Chernobyl catastrophe was a fulfillment of this prophecy. It's just an interesting thought that when Revelation chapter 8, verse 11 talks about a third of the fresh waters on earth becoming wormwood or Chernobyl, uh, that it might be a reference to some kind of nuclear contamination. We don't know. The fourth trumpet, verse 12. 
Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. As the fourth angel sounded, the focus of divine judgment shifts from the earth to the heavens. Uh, one pastor put it well when he said, and I quote, Still reeling from the effects of the first three ecological judgments, people will be desperately seeking answers to the crisis. Uh, there will be no doubt, there no, will no doubt be seminars, conferences, emergency sessions of the United Nations. Oh, thank God, they'll get it all figured out. <laughs> get the United Nations on the job. It's good as fixed. Uh, you're going to have you know, seminars, conferences, emergency sessions of the United Nations, discussions among scientists, all desperately but futilely seeking to cope with the damage to the Earth's ecosystems. In the midst of all that frenzied activity comes a new disaster in the sky as a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten, end quote. Guys, when verse 12 says that a third of the sun was struck, and also a third of the moon and a third of the stars, uh, they were struck in this judgment. The Greek word for was struck is a word, verb form, that we get the noun plague from. Plague. In other words, the language being used indicates that the sun, moon, and stars are hit with a quote-unquote plague from God. In the sense, we're speaking allegorically now, in the sense that they become sick, if you will, and not able to function to their full capacity. Now, does this mean that the brightness of the sun, moon, and stars is reduced by a third? Uh, many commentators believe that's what's being said here. Uh, but they quickly say that, but it's only temporary because in chapter 16, the sun goes into some kind of a nova condition and men are scorched upon the earth. So if you're worried about global warming, you should. But not for the reasons they're telling you. All right? But listen, others like myself believe that these cataclysmic judgments change the Earth's, Earth's rotation and or tilt in some way so that a typical 24-hour day will be changed into a 16-hour day. I found an interesting verse in Amos chapter 8, verse 9. I'll read it to you. You can look it up your, uh, on your own this, this week. But Amos 8, verse 9 and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Guys, the sun doesn't set, the earth revolves, making it look like the sun is setting. We know that, right? But the prophet is speaking in poetic terms. But the idea is that something has happened to the earth's rotation. Uh, where it should be noonday, all of a sudden the sun's going down. Something happened to change the rotation, and I believe also the tilt of uh, the earth, how it's tilted on its axis. Uh, in Luke 21, you can, why don't you turn there, okay? Luke 21. In Luke 21, Jesus is speaking about the very time we are studying in Revelation. And in fact, he could have in mind the very events that John is seeing, which he writes down in Revelation chapter 8, verse 12. 
in view, uh, Jesus could have those events in view when he said, the Lord Jesus, when he said in verse 25 of Luke 21, And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity. The Greek means no way out. Distress of nations with no way out. You know, the human race has really gotten a God complex in the last hundred or so years. As science has evolved and medicine and technology, uh, people kind of think that, you know, they're gods. They, they've rejected the true God and are looking to man as God. And uh, at one point, I believe God, what God is allowing things to get so bad, basically saying, you know, if you're gods, fix it. Go ahead. Didn't he say that to the gods Israel was worshiping in the Old Testament? Don't cry out to me. You, you, basically, you've worshipped all these idols, and now you've got a lot of problems, and you come to me to fix it? No, no, no. Go cry out to the idols you love so much, to those false gods. Let them fix your problems now. And it seems like God, what God did in a localized setting in the Old Testament, he's now doing on a worldwide scale. And he's judging the earth, and catastrophes are happening, and, uh, and man, man is terrified. But uh, there's no way out. With all of his technology, all of his science, man can't figure a way out of this problem. So it says, On the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers, the Greek word is dunamis. We get our word dynamite, okay, from that word. The powers of heaven, the Greek is uranos, from which we get our word uranium. Is there something going on here? Are we talking about some kind of uh, giant explosions in, the sp in space or, or something like that? Uh, the language seems to indicate dynamite, uranium, I don't know. Um, but he said... Uh, Men's hearts will be uh, failing them from fear of the expectation of those things coming upon the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. And the Greek is to set off balance. The earth is going to be shaken to the point where it's set off balance. With all that in mind, turn to Isaiah 13. Could this be what Isaiah the prophet was prophesying about? I'm trying to weave into our study the various Old Testament prophecies that I believe correspond or correlate to these events we're reading about in Revelation, okay? Uh, I, th I thought this was very interesting. Isaiah 13, starting with verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. God said, verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. God is humbling mankind at this point. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold a man more than uh, a man more than the golden wedge of ophir therefore i will shake the heavens 
and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. It sounds to me like the Lord is going to be messing with the tilt and the rotation of the earth in judgment. In judgment. Turn to Isaiah 24. A man is worshiping the earth. Isaiah 24, verse 19. This is God's judgment now. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. I mean, what is coming to this planet and to mankind? Now, uh, I'm doing this for memory. Um, I know I heard this. I may get the details wrong. But the scientists uh, have known for a while that uh, every 20,000 years or so, by their reckoning, the earth, as it's spinning, begins to slow down, begins to wobble like a top that's slowing down. And at one point, it flips where South Pole becomes the North Pole. North Pole begins the South Pole. You say, well, how, how does that work with people? Not good. It, it will wipe everything out on the face of the earth and everything starts over again. That's what they claim, okay? Um, it could be this is what God is allowing to begin to happen. But it's interesting. First of all, is the language figurative? That's People will wrestle with that, okay? They do wrestle with it. Um, they say, well, it's only figurative language. Really, is it? Or is the earth going to fall from its 23 and a half degree tilt to something else? Could this giant meteor that strikes the earth change the rotation of the earth from a 24 hour to a 16 hour day, causing the sun and moon not to shine for a third of the day and the night? I don't know. Possible. Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. And I looked... And I heard an angel fly, flying through the midst of, of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. At this point, some kind of supernatural messenger will appear in the sky proclaiming, Woe, three woes to the inhabitants of the earth. Most Manuscripts have uh, it translated eagle and not angel. Uh, either one, though, would certainly get people's attention. Um, but listen, it could be both. It could be both. What do you mean? Well, it might be some kind of a supernatural creature, kind of like the one, we know it's going to be a supernatural creature, but it could be the one, this, this angelic, eagle-like living creature that John saw worshiping before the throne of God in chapter 4, verse 7. Maybe this is what John is describing, how God will send this super angel, eagle-like eagle creature on a special mission. We, we can't be sure, but it's possible. The three woes in Revelation 8.13 refers refer to the three judgments yet to come when the remaining angels blow their trumpets. The three judgments that are yet to come when the three angels blow their trumpets. But I want to make it a point to stress this. 
The three woes in Revelation 8.13 refer to the three judgments yet to come when the remaining three angels blow their trumpets. Now in the Old Testament, guys, whenever the word woe is used, it is often, if not always, used in connection with very severe and even violent judgment. When you see the word woe in the Old Testament, I think Isaiah 5 is a good example, I think six times, uh, woe is used as God pronounces judgment upon Israel. All right, uh, But this always is a reference to something very severe coming in the way of judgments, okay? And uh, even violent judgment. And it's as though the messenger cried, this angelic being cried, if you think this has been terrible, just wait. The worst is yet to come. Now, let me just say this in closing. This fourth angel, excuse me, this fourth trumpet judgment could be helpful in pinpointing where we are along the timeline of the seven-year tribulation period. Again, verse 12, Revelation 8, verse 12. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. If you connect that to Joel chapter 2, verse 31, here's what the prophet Joel says about this very period. We're studying. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Listen, very important. Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. If the fourth trumpet judgment corresponds with what Joel prophesied, it means that we are about to now enter the great tribulation portion of these seven year judgments uh, remember as we have been saying jesus likened the whole seven year tribulation period to a woman in labor and he divided it into two parts the first part the first three and a half years although it might be more like four all right so i'll just say it like that uh, the first four years he likened to a woman in labor and then the last three years he likened to a woman in hard labor hard labor in fact, let's, let's look at the Turn to Matthew 24. Now, we've studied this before, but I want to show it to you again. Because in Matthew 24, Jesus is describing the final seven years. And um, I want to just go through this once again to show you something here. And so, verse 4 of Matthew 24, Jesus answered his disciples, said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. For you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. The Greek is literally, all these are the beginning of birth pangs. And what's in view, I believe, is the first six seal judgments and the first four trumpet judgments. All right? So the first part of the tribulation, again, are roughly four years. 
is going to have judgments, but they're not going to be heavy-duty judgments. Like a woman in labor, but not real intense pain yet. Not close together, contractions, that kind of thing. And I believe that corresponds to the six seal judgments and the first four trumpet judgments. Skip down to verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, folks, that is at the midpoint. We know that because the Bible tells us from the time the Antichrist sets up his image of the Holy of Holies until Jesus' return is 1260 days, three and a half years. So we know uh, this is exactly the midpoint when the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies. But that doesn't mean, though, that the judgments are going to ratchet up instantly. I believe it's going to take about six months in God's mercy. Okay, And we, we continue to read verse 17. Uh, verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 17, let him who was on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight be, may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. You can obviously see that this is targeting the people of Israel. Uh, in Israel, you can't get a, a car or a bus or a taxi on the sabbath uh, pray that your flight he's talking to jewish people in the future um, but but it's going to affect the whole world but the focus in matthew 24 are, are the jewish people okay um, verse 21 for then there will be listen great tribulation great tribulation we could say great birth pains like when a woman a pregnant woman moves into hard labor. And I believe this will include or uh, this will uh, encompass the last three trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments, okay? And Jesus said that there's going to be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. Nothing like this has ever been, okay? This kind of judgment never has happened in the history of mankind nor will ever happen again. Uh known nor ever shall be verse 22 and unless those days were shortened no flesh would be saved unless those days were shortened no flesh would be spared jesus said but for the elect's sake verse 22 those days shall be shortened we've talked about this but i believe that last statement of jesus in verse 22 about the days being shortened. If the days were not shortened, there'd be nobody left alive on the planet Earth, okay? Um, it's not a reference to them being shortened in number. As I said, there has to be 1,260 days from the Antichristetic of his image in the Holy of Holies until Jesus returns. We can't lessen those days. It's already written in stone, basically. So what's shortened? What is this shortening? Well, I believe, again, uh, what is in view is the days are going to be shortened in duration. 24-hour days turned into 16-hour days. Again, a reference to Revelation 8, verse 12. Guys, this hard labor portion of the tribulation period, known as the Great Tribulation, uh, will see the martyrdom of millions and millions of believers during this second half of this seven-year period. Turn back to Revelation 7. As we've already looked at this, Verse 9, after these things I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, 
of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. We've already talked about this. These are tribulation saints. Verse 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, uh, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these are folks that get martyred during this second half of the tribulation period. Be a time of great slaughter. Great slaughter. Okay, Revelation 8.13. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, guys, as we bring this to a close, as we, as we said, the fact that the, th the final three blasts of the trumpet judgments are called woe judgments means that there will be, listen, a great escalation in the judgments that are about to take place. Uh, these other judgments have been pretty horrific. But now you're talking about something exponentially greater than what has gone before it. Okay? And that's why there's a pause. And the angel says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Because when these last three angels blow the trumpets, wow, is it going to be bad, is the idea. Okay? And I believe, guys, when the first of these last three angels blows his trumpet it means that we have now entered into the harshest and most devastating judgments of all before jesus returns the great tribulation judgments and guys listen i believe that when the world enters these final judgments that by this time and we talked about it earlier that by this time the remaining unbelievers upon the earth will have hardened their hearts so much that they will have passed the spiritual point of no return and can no longer be saved. And the reason they can no longer be saved is because they have hardened their hearts so much they will never want to be saved. It's not that God just, okay, cuts, draws a line, says that's it. And people want to be saved. And, oh, I, you know, I, I missed the timeline or whatever. No. Um, when the first of these last three angels blows his trumpet, we are going to move into now the, the, the great tribulation portion of the tribulation period. It's going to be a time of horrific, devastating judgments, which will lead up to the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. But by this time, the remaining unbelievers on the earth will have hardened their hearts so much that they won't, have it, they won't ever want to believe. The, the opportunity, the day of grace is over. The day of grace is over. There, there's no way they, their hearts are so hard. There's no way they would ever want to be saved now. God knows that, okay? Uh, it, they have committed what we know the Bible calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The only unpardonable sin. Why? Because it's the sin of rejecting Christ so many times, your heart gets so hard, you'll never receive Christ. Guys, what I'm saying is that by the time the Lord unleashes these last judgments, everyone who will be saved is now saved. 
Everyone who was going to be saved has now been saved. I say that because as God unleashes these woe judgments upon the unbelievers living at that time, it doesn't soften their hearts. It doesn't break them. It doesn't bring them to repentance. Instead, what they do, how they respond with blasphemy against God. Their hearts are like concrete. I mean, you <clears throat> read some of these judgments that are coming. There are, they're so horrific that you would think that anyone would be broken, fall on their face, God, forgive me, save me. They're so hard, they respond with, they curse God. They blaspheme God. They hate him so much. And so I think that Joel's words, the prophet Joel, his words could constitute what we'll call a last call for the people of the earth to get saved before it's too late, before God shifts into his awesome and terrible day of the Lord judgments. You know, in Acts chapter 2, Peter quoted the, the prophet Joel. Let me read you what Peter said. Acts 2, verses 20 and 21 Again, para, uh, paraphrasing somewhat what Joel said, although it's almost identical. He said, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass, listen, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what Joel is talking about and what Peter quotes him about is that at this point, we're, the world is about to enter the great and terrible day of the Lord's judgments, the great tribulation. Up until this time, it's been tribulation, but not like what's coming. And so it, 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 these words, anyone, you know, he said, you know, the sun, moon, turned you know, sun into darkness moon turned into blood before see we've already looked at these uh, the first four trumpet judgments right uh the fourth one i think especially talks about these cosmic uh happenings in the in the heavens um these come before the great and terrible day of the lord judgments so in other words these things happen before the world passes into now this horrific period of time where the judgments are really ramped up and that's why Joel and Peter repeating Joel says whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved but you better hurry up world this is your last call uh, this is it now uh, nobody else is getting saved after this point when God shifts into his horrific great tribulation judgments everyone who is going to be saved has pretty much been saved and only that which is left are the earth dwellers, these militant atheists who will never be saved. Uh, earth dwellers in the sense that this earth is all they know, all they want. They live for the earth, the things of the earth. And they have no thought like you guys have. You're pilgrims, you're sojourners, you're, th you're, you're citizens of heaven. You're waiting for a city uh, whose builder and maker is God, right? We're waiting for a heavenly city to be taken to. This is not our home we're passing through. We're pilgrims and sojourners, but not earth dwellers. Earth dwellers are people of the earth. This is all they know. This is all they want. And these are the folks God is primarily pouring his judgments upon for destruction. Uh, yeah, the, the rest of the world, they're being judged, but a lot of folks are repenting. A lot of folks are coming to Christ during the tribulation period, at least that first 
part of it. But now the Lord gives a last call. says, guys, this is it now. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord is going to be saved, but you better hurry. You, be you better hurry. So final opportunity to receive Jesus and be saved. The next three trumpet judgments and the seven bold judgments will not be designed, listen, to evangelize. They're going to be designed, if I can put it this way, to vaporize. They just wipe people out. As I said, nobody left that was going to get saved. So God ratchets up the judgments, shifts them into high gear, and they come fast and furious like a woman at the end of her labor. How the pains are right on top of each other until the child is born. And then she has peace. The world is going to reel to and fro uh, with one cataclysmic judgment after another until Jesus returns and births the kingdom. And there's going to be peace for a thousand years. Peace. And then, of course, into eternity. So we will continue now with chapter 9 next week. And wow, there is stuff going on that chapter 9 describes. Uh, I, I don't even know how to phrase it. We'll, we'll look at it next time. But uh, wow. Okay. And uh, we'll see what that's <laughs> talking about. Whoa. Well, let me throw a wow in there. All right. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For your word, and we thank you, Lord, especially that because we have received Jesus as our Savior, um, we are your children now. And we don't need to be judged with the wicked. So you will rapture your church off of the earth and give us a balcony view of what's going on uh, during this seven-year period of time. But we just thank you, Lord, that you have rescued us you have, by that time, will have evacuated us off the earth in the rapture. And we thank you, Lord, that we are not appointed to wrath. We are your kids now. We thank you for that. Give us grace, Lord, to be a light in the darkness, to be faithful witnesses to you that we represent you properly to the people of this world uh, who are in darkness. And we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.